Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting virtual panel discussion. I'm Tim Stark and the host of today's exciting event. I'm a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. This is our 15th and last webinar of 2020, and we are already scheduling our exciting webinars for 2021, which will be released soon. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation and discussion, and our speakers will address them as we move through the discussion. The recording of this webinar will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attend the entire panel discussion. Okay, today we have five distinguished panelists to answer your questions about subgrade, subgrade preparation and CQC slash CQA procedures related to the installation of geosynthetics. Like a building, a good geosynthetics installation and long-term performance starts with a good foundation or subgrade. I'll introduce each panelist and they will give a short description of the importance of a good subgrade and their task and thoughts for a good geosynthetics installation. Afterwards, the panelists will start answering your questions that you submit through the questions box. Our first panelist is Kennedy Garber, Vice President of Construction for Halliton Environmental Linings in Maryland. And Kennedy will describe the importance of subgrade preparation on membrane installation. Kennedy, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, from the in, I'm on the installer side, uh, so from the installer standpoint, I think it's important that everybody understands that there's a direct correlation between the quality of the subgrade and the overall quality of the installation and the performance of the project. So I mean, that's really what we want to sort of impress upon. Great. Thank you. Our next panelist is John Allen. John is a technical service manager with Owens Corning and also the president-elect of the North American chapter of the International Geosynthetic Society. John will describe the importance of subgrade preparation on geomembrane performance. When I arrive at the site, you often don't always know the card you're going to get dealt or what your product's going to experience. And so in terms of QC and CQA actions, I'm always looking for uh, the soil types that I have to work with and the tools that the contractors brought to the site um, to build the best possible subgrade going forward to ensure the quality of that membrane that's going down and the and subsequent layers that go above it. Thanks, John. Our next panelist is Dave McClory. Dave is the president and CEO of Demtech Services, Inc., which is a large manufacturer of geomembrane seaming and testing equipment since 1987. Dave will describe the importance of subgrade preparation on geomembrane welding and testing. Thanks, Doc, and uh, thanks everybody that's attending the webinar. Uh, the, the the seaming of the geomembranes in as it relates to subgrade and the quality of the subgrade sometimes gets overlooked, not by the installer, but a lot of times by the engineers, the the dirt work uh, subcontractors, the general contractors. So it's really important that when when you want to create a good seam it has to be free of certain elements like dirt moisture that sort of thing and if the subgrade uh, is has low spots and standing water for instance that's a good one mud loose uh, uh, soil sand it really can create a problem with seaming which of course hurts the overall installation and its ability to hold whatever liquid you're trying to keep uh, inside of there thanks dave our next panelist is Brian Bailey. Brian is the commercial director for Tenkati's Environmental Infrastructure Group, and he will describe the use of geotextiles to protect the geomembrane from the subgrade and overlying materials. Brian? All right, hello. So yes, my group uh, will be engaged uh, for protection, liner protection, so we'll look at various uh, uh, site issues that might be there. Uh, that would engage the liner, and then also any structural uh, needs that might be uh, required to support the lining system. So it's really about protecting 
and supporting that lining system uh, for the long term. So that's Great. where we come in. Great. Our final panelist is Matt Chemnitz. Matt is the president of Leak Location Services, Inc., which surveys the completed installation to locate the effects of a bad subgrade on the geosynthetics. Matt will describe the role of subgrade preparation and defects in the overlying geomembrane. So Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So when we go out to a site, very rarely do we get to see the subgrade to know what it looks like, because we're the last step in this whole process. So how it affects us greatly is that if the subgrade is not smooth, there could be low points to where there's not intimate contact with the liner to the subgrade, leaving air pockets, which are not easily detectable um, to find leaks on those. And another situation is if um, the subgrade is, is uneven, it could cause some wrinkles, which again, when there's an overlap on the liner, that also is hard to find wrinkles as well. But we don't know that, we can't see it. So we do our best uh, to find the leaks and, and hope that the people before us did, uh, did the best job they could. Great, thanks, Matt. <clears throat> so let me go to the next slide. Okay, so we already have some questions coming in. Uh, please enter your questions via the questions box and we will get through them through the panel discussion. So first question for the panelists. What are the three most common and costly subgrade preparation issues and how do you prevent them? So. Um, who wants to start on that one? Um, well, I'll, I'll start, Tim, if you don't mind. Um, sure. I mean, I think one of the most expensive parts of the job is the material. I mean, a lot of times it's 80% of the cost of our contract. So, you know, you've got to take very good care of it, and you've got to be careful not to waste it. Um, you know, as the installer, we don't buy too much because we don't want to work that into the job. We also can't afford to be short. So. Subgrade prep, having you know the right subgrades so that we're not yanking a piece of liner out and having to throw it away or or repair stuff uh, down the road is, is really a costly mistake. Okay, and and then okay, John, do you want to? Because there was a second part. How do we prevent the three costly subgrade preparation issues? You don't let the water truck driver go home on the weekend. <laughs> if, you're, if you're working with clay, you got to keep the, the clay hydrated and you can't let it desiccate, right? That's a well-known one. Um, the second one are surprises in your soil conditions. And and being able to accommodate that and work up front early. And if you need a cushion textile, you can go down that path to protect the membrane if the if this particle size is, uh, if you're oversized or if your particles are too sharp. Okay. Anybody else? I'll just, I'll throw in a little bit, you know, in the subgrade, if there is a lot of sharp rock that hasn't been screened out, you can find literally hundreds of leaks in small one acre ponds. Um, and if you have a hundred leaks in a one acre pond, you pretty much like Kennedy said earlier, you have to, you're gonna have to scrap it because it's just not worth it. So screening it, putting down a fabric that all helps to minimize uh, the damage. Yeah. But if you had to break it down to three, it would probably be what water, grading, and uh, sharp objects, rocks, and other things. Those would be probably the big three on site prep. Okay, a um, couple comments from uh, some of our attendees. If if you could just sort of wave when you jump in to talk. Uh, so they'll be able to identify who's talking. Okay, next question. Um, can you describe real life examples when you encounter issues with the subgrades and how do you fix them? So let me let me be specific. Um, Kennedy, you're you're the installer, so raise your hand and you start off. Uh, well, the first thing we're going to do before we start laying any fabric, geotextile or liner, is uh, we're going to walk the subgrade with the contractor. If there's an inspector, we're going to walk with the inspector and um, make sure that we understand 
what the expectations are and that everybody else does as well. Um, we're going to do some rock picking, looking for any sharp objects. A lot of times you're going to see some rocks or roots or some material in the soil. Um, anything like that needs to be picked out of the surface. Um, also, water. I mean, what Brian was saying here a minute ago, that water is a big killer. So, you know, you know, it's funny. A lot of times the first question we get when we show up to a job is, how much water can you weld through? You know, the answer is none. So we don't want any water in there. Um, a couple of soft spots we might be able to work around, but, but water is, is a killer for sure. And there's there's some tricks to get around that too. It also depends, David Demtech, uh, on on what what the liner if you're if you have a a layer of geosynthetics under the liner, like a GCL for instance, or a, a geotextile as a cushion layer. You know that affords you a little bit uh, more latitude on the subgrade, but still a good subgrade grade is is super important from the from the word go on a quality engineered installation. Uh, there's there's tricks around it also with the welding side. If you do have a loose subgrade, sand, gravel, that sort of thing, you can use a, a strip of geomembrane underneath the seam area and pull that along as you go as a sled, call it a rub a rub sheet, uh, that can keep the welder up out of the dirt and the mud and the sand and the gravel and facilitate a good seam that way. But uh, like like Matt mentioned, if, if the subgrade is so bad that it's poking holes in the liner, then the quality of the seams are kind of a moot point. Okay, uh, next question. <clears throat> what is the steepest slope you have ever have seen for a liner system and what additional considerations and concerns are there for that slope subgrade? Um, uh, Kennedy, I, I would say that uh, it comes down to the application. You know, we do a lot of different types of containment projects. You know, if we're talking a, a wastewater lagoon or a pond versus a landfill or um, some sort of secondary containment area, uh, you have to factor in the steepness, uh, the steepness of the slopes with the length of the slopes. So if it's a containment area around a above ground storage tank, you know, a one-to-one -one slope isn't a killer. But if it's on a pond, you know, you're going to have you know, soil stability issues underneath the liner, you know, with the, you know, some water wave action hitting the liner. So you've got to sort of factor that into what your, you know, what your application is there. It's not just a one-size-fits-all. Okay. Anybody else with a steep slope? Yeah, go ahead, John. So I've worked on a, uh, I don't want to call it a tailing dam. It was a uh, leachate collection dam downstream of a, a a dry stack tailings impoundment that had near vertical on the side slopes um, to batten strip tie-ins. And then all of the soils were granular with uh, chiseled rock anchor trenches. It's probably the hardest subgrade I've ever worked on. Um, and the resolution was to go with a very thick liner and then there was no fill placed over the top of it. But the real hazard actually was coming from above. Um, outside of the work area where there was a vertical face above one side of the dam area where you could have loose rock falling on onto the liner. So point being, sometimes it's not your subgraded, sometimes it may be hazards outside of the lining area that you need to consider um, a little bit as well. Yep. Okay, next, uh, would a GCL be a better alternative than a geotextile if you have an unsuitable subgrade under the geo membrane, I don't know. Uh, maybe John and Brian. Yeah. You want the, You want this one, Brian? I. <laughs> well, I, I. I think it's really kind of two different things, and uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. But I mean, a GCL is really a secondary, or in some instances, a primary source of lining, right? Whereas, uh, the, you know, non-woven, uh, you know, what we provide as, as a uh, protection or cushion, um, it's, it's really two different animals, so they shouldn't be confused. You're not really using a GCL as a cushion or as a, uh, as a safety 
device for cushioning, although you could probably argue that it, it does provide possibly, you know, some of that function, but it's not, that's not its primary function. Whereas with a non-woven, that is the primary function is basically act as a, a protective layer. So um, not to mention some of the other functions as, as far as water transmissivity, maybe even air uh, transmissivity, uh, you know, none of those are, are uh, within the GCL's, uh, I guess, benefit, what it provides. Okay. Um, next is, who has primary responsibility for approving the subgrade? Contractor, engineer, installer, regulatory person? Oh, Kenny, you, maybe you should start with this one. Yeah, so there is certainly a professional responsibility on Halton, on the installer. Um, however, you know, we're sort of limited to what, um, you know, what we can do. I mean, the, the contractor is going to provide a subgrade that's within the project specifications. Um, we're there to say that we can or can't approve the subgrade based on what we think would be um, functional. Okay, so we can say, you know, we we need some rocks picked or we need things dried up, but we don't necessarily approve the subgrade um, in terms of comparing it to the specs. We would really lean on the inspector, like a third-party inspector, the engineer representative to be the eyes and ears of the client. So, you know, they would be out there during construction, during site prep. Um, they would report issues. You know, they would bring up concerns with their client. And then when we get out there, you know, our job is sort of understand the needs of the client, you know, talk to the inspector about it, talk to the contractor about it, you know, and is it suitable enough for us to deploy the line around. Okay. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Go ahead, John. I'll weigh in on that. Um, Kennedy touched on uh, the specifications or the contract documents that everyone's held to. Not every project has every layer uh, or every belt and suspender option that's out there. So in some cases, the, the membrane will go down and it's uh, probably at the discretion of the, of the installer. And, and in other places, you'll have multiple levels of uh, different approvers of that subgrade. So I think it's dependent on project risk, contract documents, and, uh, and, and just what you're building in general. So is it the CQA or the third party that's really approving it then? Who, who's the, who actually gives the approval and says it meets spec? Well, I suppose that if, like, but what John's saying is that um, if there is a CQA on site, I mean, the CQA is the client's eyes and ears, you know, and they're going to be reporting this back to their client. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, there's not a CQA on site. So in, in those cases, it would be the installer that would have the, you know, the, you know, we'd be approving it or, or rejecting it based on what we see. And we'd be, you know, sort of relating, you know, relaying our expectations to the client, to the contractor on how much risk we're willing to take and the correlation between, you know, the subgrade preparation and, and what we're going to get out of the end of it. We wouldn't accept anything that would jeopardize the quality of the liner. Okay. Um, should the... Whoever is going to approve the subgrade be formalized on each day. In other words, have like a pre-meeting or a start the day. Who who is going to be approving subgrade? This is Kennedy. I lost my connection, but I can still hear you guys on my phone. Um, we would approve it each day. So we would walk the area that we plan on covering with liner every day before we start. Um, and even after lunch, basically between each shift, you know, we would inspect the area in front of the liner that we're laying. If we have any issues, we'd bring it up immediately for repair. And assuming it looks good, then we'll uh, commence with the installation. Okay. Um, the questions are really rolling in now. Uh, so 
Um, I have a question about interface transmissivity. I realize that the geotextile beneath the geomembrane will act as a conduit for leakage through any holes, but this very this geotextile uh, could also prevent holes. How do you balance these two conflicting things? So, in other words, the idea is the composite liner, the geomembrane is in intimate contact with the subgrade. So, if we put a non-woven, for example, Brian. So, I'm going to pitch this to you. Yeah. Do we leave? Do we lose our composite liner action? Well, I mean, and I've seen in a lot of specs where they'll they'll actually have a, a trans, you know, some type of permeability or transmissivity value to the non-woven under the liner. But I think ultimately uh, the intent is to never have that happen. And I, I don't think the intent of the non-woven is to place something in there that provides uh, really good transmissivity for uh, toxic leakage underneath the lining system. Uh, I think it's, re it's really for uh, more groundwater movement, uh, I, I would assume. Basically, water movement coming from underneath the liner and creating a conduit or a, a, a way of allowing that water pressure to uh, dissipate uh, from underneath the lining system. Uh, I don't think it's viewed in terms of allowing leachate a, uh, a conduit for getting out of the system. That's, that's not the intent of the non-woven. It's really protection and to uh, mitigate that from even happening. So I think, did I answer the question there, Tim? I think that's what they were looking at, right? The the contradiction between those two. Yeah, I think so. And and I think your point about specifying the transmissivity of the geotextile, if you're worried about that, keep it very low. Yeah. So there's not a conduit there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think I think ultimately I see a lot of specs where it's in there. But after you have a quick conversation with the engineers, it's, it, it quickly becomes apparent that really it's a non-factor. Uh, what you're looking at mainly for the non-woven is, is protection. So cushioning, protection, uh, water movement is really not high, if at all, on the list of, of things that should be viewed for that material yeah. and, that, and that application. Go so ahead, Brian, Tim. on that note yeah. too, like. If, if you get a, if you're having to use a textile under the liner, usually you're de dealing with a cohesionless soil, which is mm -hmm. going to be highly permeable anyways. Yeah. So it's it, it's not a it's not an inhibitor of more flow because you already have a high flow situation underneath your liner to start with. Right. Okay. Next one is uh, really steps into it, and maybe we'll just go around the the room on this one. What size rocks are accept, acceptable under the membrane? Would you allow larger rocks under a GCL? Um, so, I don't know, Kennedy, why don't we start with you? And, and I think this can go to everybody and end up with Matt about what size rocks he usually sees with defects. So think about that one, Matt. Go ahead, Kennedy. Um, that's a good question. So it's not necessarily, we don't want to see a lot of rocks in the subgrade, uh, I guess, to, to kind of answer the question. Um, less than 3 8 minus is a lot of the, you see a lot of that in spec books. Um, but for us, the important part is what's rolling up on the surface. So we're going to be pulling geotextile, GCL, gym membrane out directly over the soil. And if everything's rolled in nice and tight where we're not rolling those objects up and creating a sharp point, you know, the fact that it's in the subgrade isn't necessarily the risk, it's, it's unearthing it and, um, you know, creating a, an irregular, irregularity in the surface. And that's what's going to create a puncture point for us. So we might see some, some grades that are, that are all rock. I mean, they're, they're rolled in really nice and we just have to deal with what we have, you know, given a situation, you know, maybe a secondary containment area. But um, as long as the rocks are rolled in nice and tight and they're not, showing up into a point where they're going to you know, punch a hole and it's something we can live with. But the, I guess the short story, short answer is the fewer rocks, the better. John? So 
from a manufacturer perspective, I think I don't think you'll find a manufacturing installation guide out there that doesn't give you a maximum particle size. And that's always going to be the manufacturer's position. When it comes to actual construction, like Kennedy was describing, and you do have max particles or you your borrow source investigation reveals that you're just going to exceed that all the time, there's a process that you can follow to evaluate uh, textiles for the, the puncture protection that you need. And, and then that's when you start deferring and calling calling Brian is to get that support. Um, but yeah, max particle size is very well defined by the manufacturing community and what they'll allow in the subgrade. Demo, Dave, any rock size issues getting your getting welders? Yeah, as it results to weld quality not really i mean if you if we're we're talking about a gcl being present underneath the geomembrane then that that basically separates the subgrade from the seaming area from the geomembrane uh seam zone so there's really you know there can be very large rocks under there unless they're unless they're sticking up several inches where they create a, a barrier or a, or a, a friction enough friction on the welder itself to try to stop the machine in the seam which would be that obviously would have been taken care of before that point and there's really no no big issue there. It's when there isn't something underneath the liner and the machine has to travel partly on the subgrade itself, directly on the subgrade is when we have concerns with the quality of the subgrade itself. Okay. Brian, anything else you want to add on geotextile and maximum particle size? Uh, not really. I mean, it, it, they pretty much touched on it. it, it it's really the uh, what the liner you know, it's really based on the lining manufacturers and what they see as being limitations, uh, particle size limitations. And I would assume that the type of particle is probably has a little something to do with it also, the, the shape or the angularity or anything like that. Um, but, you know, as far as uh, with the non-wovens, I think they're, they're, they're really added in as a uh, kind of a belt and suspenders just to, to for add further protection for lining systems so okay so matt again we started with particle size but i've got a bunch of questions here about leak location and for example any rule of thumb of where you see most damage versus maximum particle size is there a relationship between particle size and size and number of defects so i got a lot of questions about those topics so where we see most of our damage if i had to break it out would be at the toa slope and it's not really the size of the particle or the rock in this case it's it's the sharpness of it so if there's if there's a sharp sharp rocks in the subgrade those will work their way through it does it does make me feel good though when i go out there and i see a fabric down or a gcl down i know there's some protection against that I mean, if we could find, you know, manufacturer pinholes in the liner, then any any size, as long as it's sharp enough to puncture the liner, we're gonna we're gonna see it. Um, so that's that's where we see most of ours though is the Toa slope in that area. Anywhere there's a lot of welding going on, a kind of a difficult spot, maybe even um, a pipe boot. Those those are those are tough to do. Uh, never done one myself, but those are where a lot of leaks are showing up too. Okay. All right. Here's uh, another one. Some engineers and owners are hesitant to dictate means and methods for the earthwork contractor to pre prepare the subgrade. And our CQA function have found it critical to get a good subgrade requires the specs to dictate means and method. Has the group seen a project where detailed subgrade specs other than smooth and free of one half inch protrusions been helpful? What was done to achieve a superior subgrade? There's a look. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. All right, um, let's just start with Kennedy again, and we'll try to work our way around. Um, you know, that's a tough one. A lot of times we get on site after a lot of the subgrade work is done, so it's sort of presented to us to uh, to take from there. Um, it's the top few inches that's really the most important part. But I think communication as a project team is probably the most important part. Um, you know, there is 
a point where later you're going to wish you did a better job with that subgrade. You know, you might get it to a point that is suitable enough for us to get started on, but the more work you put into it, getting it prepared, making it look nice, the better groundwork it lays, uh, no pun intended, you know, for the whole job. Okay. So as far as the specification, you know, it's it's tough. I, I don't know that you're going to get a lot of pushback from the contractor, but but it really comes down to good communication and good relationship on site between all parties. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, I'll, I'll say something real quick. Um, when when we go to a site again, we don't we don't know how the subgrade was prepped typically. But if we're doing a large site and there's not a whole lot of leaks showing up and we ask about the process, what was done, what did you do? Typically, the, the same things happen. They, they screen it and um, when they place it down, there's a lot of CQA out there that's that's watching each step. So what, what I'm getting at is, is Kennedy kind of pointed this, there's the teamwork, everybody doing their job is really focused on doing their part well. The planning, all the communication, using the right materials to put this site together, that's what you'll see when there's very few leaks. And it's and it usually goes from start to finish with preparation of subgrade right off the bat. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah, to, to add to that, this is Kennedy again. Um, just to add to that, you know, in applications where the liner stays exposed, and maybe it's a above, you know, a pond or, you know, a containment area that the liner is going to stay visible. You know, at the end of the job, when we all step back and really we're proud of ourselves and slapping ourselves on the back for doing a nice job and, and being done with the contract, you do look out at the subgrade and say, like, man, I wish we spent a little more time at the toe right where those roller marks are, right where we, we you know, we've got some track marks from the, you know, from the machine and a little bit of extra work back in the beginning would have looked nicer in the end because the clients can look at this every day this finished product and you're going to see those you know those little irregularities in the surface of the liner it's not the liner's not thick enough where it covers up all those little spots that they will settle and you'll see them down the road and you want it to be you want it to look amazing when you're done you want to leave a, a good job behind yeah and that kind of applies to seaming as well it's the same thing if you take a little time to prepare to make to make the subgrade or in the related to seaming, if if you take a little time to work out some of the wrinkles in that seam that you're about to load your welder into and start, then you don't have to fight that wrinkle the entire seam. So a little bit of uh, preparation at the beginning makes the whole thing go a lot smoother. And a lot of guys say, well, I don't have time to uh, to, to do that preparation. I'm just going to get this machine in and go. Well, that's when you have a failure. That's when you have uh, when you struggle with a wrinkle or or whatever. So preparation really is everything. It's worth the time. Okay. Kennedy opened up the door for voids and depressions. We've been talking about maximum rock size. So I have a bunch of questions on voids and depressions. For example, what, what's an allowable void? Uh, what do you say when you require a smooth drum roller of the sub subgrade and the installer wants to drive their equipment on the finished subgrade to deploy the materials, which could leave depressions and voids. Uh, let me see if there's another one. Um, uh, okay, so why don't we start with, with those, talk about voids instead of maximum particle size. Why don't we go around, around the room again, because I can see this affecting welding as well as uh, testing. And so go ahead, Kennedy. Um, well, I mean, I don't know that the material is really designed to bridge a big gap. I mean, you don't want to have a tire mark that's going to be, it's going to leave a space behind the liner. It's going to affect, you know, the strength of the material long term. Um, it's going to affect the flow of any uh, liquid on top of the liner. You know, if it's flowing to a low spot, it could impede uh, drainage. It's going to affect, you know, Matt leak location's ability to test the liner. Um, certainly create problems with seaming so yeah i mean it, the the site's done such a nice job preparing this beautiful subgrade and they've listened to all your concerns and you know everybody's done a nice job of turning over this, this smooth looking job and then you get out there and rut it up and leave a void um that's 
it'd be unacceptable. I mean, it really come down to, you know, those would need to be fixed. John? So um, the voids can happen in two different ways. Uh, with cohesive soils, you can see the blade pop chunks of cohesive clay out of the ground. And those just have to be go, you have to go back and fix them um, and, and fill them back in and it's handwork. And the same goes with the cohesionless soils. You can, if the, the soils are really loose at the site and you're operating equipment out there, you can put voids in even after you proof rolled it. And you just gotta go back with the rake and, and fix it. So it takes a little bit of handwork and not saying that your yellow iron is the end all be all to subgrade prep. It takes, takes some handwork and some labor. Um, and I guess that's what I always reinforce when I'm out there in the, in the CQA role. Uh, hey, Dave. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it, if there's subgrade lends itself to damage, easy damage by equipment, by running, you know, deployment equipment or anything on that subgrade, there's other ways to help prevent that by using say deployment winches to pull the geomembrane across uh, the, the pond or the to deploy the the material using a, a, a puller or a winch type of setup that way you don't have to have any vehicles drive on the subgrade at all uh, and in some cases access doesn't allow it or if you're working on top of a gcl a lot of times a spec won't allow uh, anything over a certain uh, ground pressure to be on top of that component anyway so in those cases you just use a dead man pull method to pull the liner out without even touching the subgrade and that is one way to get around that and in some cases that can create a little bit more labor or isn't as convenient and sometimes it's uh it's actually a better way to do it so there are other tricks to the trade to get around that okay brian anything quick no i mean the guys hit all the points i mean voids just by their very nature are asking the liner to engage from a tensile standpoint so well, that's something you never really want to do from a long-term uh long-term design so the only voids i've ever dealt with that were always theoretical or hypothetical in the long-term design of the project based on subgrade or new cell construction or cell expansion i should say um, it was never based on <laughs> doing something over knowingly ruts or anything that locating any defects over tire ruts and other depressions yeah, we uh, we can expose some leaks and we'll we'll see some tracks or some uh, something that showed us that somebody drove on that subgrade right before they covered it up, and uh, that is the reason for the leak. If that void there is too much pressure in that one localized spot, it's uh, it causes damage. So ideally, you don't want anybody on something that you just finished and made perfect. So if you can avoid it, I definitely would. Okay, so I think for our attendees the first takeaway is if you smooth drum roll it don't run equipment over it and leave tire ruts okay hey, Next, tim i got one more comment on this we're sure, within astm we're working on clarifying um operational equipment and the and low ground pressure and the steps you need to take when you are running um track skid steers and things like that around the site uh and, and what's allowable so there's there's some future language coming down the road. Okay, John, when you brought that up, um, there are a number of questions that you could maybe address with your test method or standard. What do what would be the minimal degree of compaction or minimum percent of relative compaction from modified or standard proctor for a functioning line pond application with minor differential settlement? In other words, should they be compacting to 90% based on standard or modified proctor? I don't know if you want to touch on that, but I've got a number of questions on that. Okay, it's not um, it's not a super straightforward question. So if we're dealing with clay soils, we usually have a hydraulic conductivity requirement that we're trying to meet when we're putting in that subgrade soil, and in you can either compact to a higher degree of compaction and get a and get a lower void ratio with um, or you can compact with more energy to a lower percentage of um, maximum dry density with a with a heavier hammer so 
the general the general rules of thumb that you see in specifications are 95% of standard practice or 90% of modified. Now you have to back that up with your hydraulic conductivity testing as well. But when you start um, driving too close to 100% of standard proctor or 95% of uh, modified, you really start painting your uh, earthwork contractor into a box that they can't operate in very well. So it, it takes a, a little bit of a laboratory study to define um, the acceptable range of densities and moisture contents and hydraulic conductivity performance. And to even take it a step further, your shear strength properties of that clay. So I, I think I hit all that in a very succinct amount. It, it, it's more complicated than, uh, and, and there's quite a bit to it, but we can talk about that offline if somebody really wants to discuss it. Right, no, it's all intertwined. And if, if it's just a regular subgrade, not as a compacted soil liner, of course, then the hydraulic conductivity can loosen up a little bit, but otherwise it's important. Okay, for obvious reasons, I have probably, I don't know, five to 10 questions about cold weather. Let me start a couple of these and open up this discussion. Could you develop uh, specific requirements for installation under freezing temperatures? Can you share any experience you have doing cold weather installation, dealing with issues like rain, snow, ice, frozen subgrade? Uh, what are the challenges with uh, frozen subgrades? So, number of questions. Who who wants to start? Kennedy, maybe you start on this. Sure, I'll start. I don't know if I have an answer for this, but I know that we're, you know, it's December and we're just getting into these cold temperatures now. So we're seeing ice on the liner, ice on the subgrade. Um, you know, we'd prefer to have nice sunny days every day when we're putting in liner but i guess it's a it's just part of the business um yeah i mean as far as subgrade prep i mean you have a lot of difficulties when we have freezing and thawing every day you know the the clay in the afternoon will be re-rolled compacted certified it'll look beautiful we'll come out the next morning it'll be frozen it'll look nice but as it thaws out it'll start to um sort of fall apart you know it can crumble or it can become really soft and sloppy you know so you know I, I don't know the answer to laying liner while it's frozen and, and what you know if it thaws out after we've laid liner and we're tracking all over it we're going to have displacement we're going to have footprints we're going to have voids um so if you do lay on a frozen subgrade i think the important part would be to stay off of it but you know the you know, it's still, still think you need to keep up a level expectation of, of the subgrade even in cold weather temperatures. Okay. Uh, let's just go around. John, next. Any anything you want to add? In terms of welding, and I'll let I think I'll let Dave speak to this more. Um, there are a bunch of uh, steps that need to be taken, but in terms of the subgrade. You're gonna to get to a point in the where you can't either develop enough that's ready to be covered by the liner contractor if they are working in cold weather conditions. So you, then you run up against windows, right? Um, do you have all your subgrade prep and ready to go before it freezes and sets up, or do you need to look maybe to quicker and faster deployment methods where you can put down lots and lots of material much more quickly? Um, and that would be looking at the fabricated mem membrane space uh, versus uh, traditional HDPE panels that take take a lot more time to get in. So it it has to be well thought out when you start heading down the cold weather path. Okay, demo anything about welding and testing on frozen subgrade? Yeah, you know it really it comes down subgrade is is important if you're if you're trying to weld over mud, let's say. Uh, hydrated clay because it froze and then it thawed out. As soon as you put a black liner on top of it, the sun's going to heat up that liner, it's going to heat up that frozen subgrade and turn it to mud. And that's right before the welder gets through there. So like I mentioned earlier, in those situations, it's not that you can't weld, it's just that you have to 
maybe run a rub sheet, maybe uh, uh, prepare things a little bit better so that the, the machine is running on top of a piece of plastic underneath the seam area instead of down onto the muddy subgrade, pulling mud up into the machine and into that seam area. So again, it's just, it's not that it can't be done. It's just more labor intensive to do it when the subgrade is, is muddy or wet or very loose. And you know, cold weather welding, uh, there are a lot of specs out there that don't allow welding under 32 degrees Fahrenheit anyway uh, at all or over a certain temperature, 120 degrees or whatever, it's usually in the spec. Uh, but that really isn't related to a subgrade conversation, it's just related to welding only of the geomembrane itself. So uh, it kind of applies and it kind of doesn't. Okay. Uh, Brian, anything quick on freezing? No, not really. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't affect my side very much. Okay, Matt, any issues with you performing leak location surveys in freezing or cold temperatures? Yeah, in specific uh, to subgrade and leak location, if the subgrade is frozen, uh, the test cannot be done. It's it's just as simple as that. Once that subgrade's frozen, it acts like an insulator, and the current just won't go through it. So. It's 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 nothing nothing that can be done about it. You just can't do a survey uh, when it's frozen. Okay, there's takeaway number two for our attendees: cannot do leak location in frozen subgrade conditions. So have to get it in before. All right, next big topic is: are vehicles typically allowed to travel on top of the deployed geomembrane? If yes, what is the typical maximum vehicle size, weight, ground pressure? Um, Tires, there are a bunch of questions. Um, rubber tires, type of tires, etc. So, uh, Kennedy, why don't we again start with you on the installation side? Yeah, I think um, pretty much every major installer out there is probably using a UTV, um, Gator, or Kawasaki Mule, uh, you know, one of these 4x4 buggies, basically. Um, you know, it's a it's an incredibly useful tool to help pull liner in place, to move tools around. Um, you know, it, it's pretty pretty commonplace, I think, nowadays. Uh, it's very low ground pressure. I think it's less than five psi, but it's also it helps. You know, they need to have the tires deflated so that we're getting a bigger surface area. You know, we're not having a, a sharp knobby part of the tire, you know, pressing on one spot of the liner. Um, but I think that's pretty common seeing a gator. Um, we also use a skid steer at times. You know, the subgrade is going to have to be nice and firm. Um, a skid steer PSI is actually lower than the gator, uh, rubber track skid steer. Um, however, it's a heavy machine. So if you don't have a firm, flat subgrade, you know, you're, you're kind of opening yourselves up for problems and rutting and voids under the liner. Okay. John from the geomembrane side. If, um, going back to my comment earlier about the uh, language that we're uh, working to get into some of the test methods in the ASTM, uh, we're writing in things uh, usually the, the allowable ground pressure is usually set at five psi, maybe even a little less, uh, depending on the site and the sensitivity. But from a, a CQA standpoint, when that vehicle leaves the work area and comes back for one reason or another, Look at the tires. Make sure it hasn't picked up a nail and or or a rock in the tread that can then get driven over the liner as it's trafficking around. And then minimize your turns so that we're not. The skid steer has the ability to make a, uh, uh, I guess I'll call it a turn on a dime. Uh, um, it needs to be back and forth action. No uh, no hard turns or, or spinning on the liner. Rotational rotational type turns. Yep. Okay, demo, you're good. Uh, Brian, anything about uh, vehicles pulling out geotextiles on top of the geomembrane? Not really. No, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's all about the subgrade, like Kennedy said. It's all about the subgrade. Okay. All right, Matt, you're good. So here's, um, here, here's a question, and there are a number related to the interface between contractors and the liner installer and geosynthetic supplier. Any comments on how best to deal with the interface between the Earthworks contractor and the liner installer, as this is typically a source of significant conflict? 
either the subgrade's not ready for the liner installer, so they have to stand and wait before they can install their materials. Um, and then they do not, what about if there is a conflict, then they're not able to cover all available subgrade in a day and the earthquake contractor has to re rework it, all leading to standing times, rework, claims, conflict. And that's about four questions blended. So go ahead. Uh, Kennedy, why don't you start? Uh, well, I don't know if I'll answer all those in one shot here, um, but it takes a lot of communication. One, for the installer understanding what we think we can cover in a day. So we don't want to ask the contractor to prepare 10 acres if we only think we're going to cover three acres. Um, we, we have to make sure they understand that we're going to do three acres today, and we're going to do three acres tomorrow, and we're going to do three acres the next day. So you need to be you know, providing a subgrade as we go, um, but what we don't want to say it all has to be ready. You can spend a week getting it ready, and then it's going to rain the day we show up, which almost always happens. Um, you know, there is going to be a little bit of a waiting game. It's sort of like uh, the bad analogy. It's like getting on and off a carousel, right? You don't know when to jump on and when to jump off, but you need to you need to time it just right and uh, show up there as it's getting prepared. You know, talking almost on a daily basis so that the contractor's not wasting all their money prepping it for you and you're in no show and you don't want to show up with a whole crew expecting to work and still, you know, days before you can lay the first piece of liner. Okay. Um, anybody else? I, I want to try to get some more questions in. Anybody else want to quickly deal with the interface between the contractors and the installers? Okay. Um, here we go. Back to the vehicles going across the installed geomembrane. What about driving vehicles across wrinkles? Should you drive along the wrinkles, across the wrinkles, avoid the wrinkles? Maybe John, why don't you deal with that for from the manufacturer side? Um, well, that's a loaded one, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really gonna have to. <laughs> All right, let me come back then. Here's yeah, a, I, that's a that's a super sensitive one that I think is a going to be a judgment call on site. Like, if if those wrinkles are getting tall enough, and you're operating a vehicle on it, and you push them over, you're going to start creasing the product. Like, th that's just a, a a bad situation all the way around, and probably needs to stop work and revisit. You know, pick it up at, on the night shift. Um, if you're getting into that kind of situation or look at your deployment methods. Okay. And for all the attendees, there are many more questions we're not going to get through. So we're going to have a follow-up podcast and we will address all the questions and main topics. So let me try to get a few more in real quick. Um, there is a comment here, Matt, that leak location services sur surveys can be done in frozen conditions with us special techniques so viewers um, there may be another way to get around it Matt I don't know if you want to comment on that I'm just looking at this that would be that would be um, the spark test if there's a conductive liner or um, okay. an arc test could possibly be done but not a not a soil survey oh it's okay um, there's a bunch of questions about working at night John just opened that door up so let me just uh, how do you approve the subgrade at night? What should you do with night work and the subgrade and CQA? So there's probably five to 10 questions there. Kennedy, why don't you start with night work? Um, we're not opposed to night work. Um, however, you know, you do sort of open yourself up to some safety issues. You know, when you were looking at picking rocks and picking uh, voids in the subgrade, you know, to repair, you know, at night work, it's harder to catch this stuff. Um, you know, you want to try to get as much progress in as you can, but there is a limit to how far you can push it. I mean, maybe light plants extending into later hours of the evening, but as an installer, we try to avoid, you know, working late into the, you know, into the night, second shift. Try to take, as, take advantage of the sun as much as we can. Anybody else want to talk about night work? Okay, 
Um, I've got many questions about penetrations, geomembrane penetrations for pipes, et cetera. Uh, John, why don't you start us off? Give us some quick words of wisdom about penetrations. Sorry, put you on the spot. But yeah. <laughs> um, I like having a good billet of soil air, depending on the type of penetration, transitioning from the horizontal to the vertical. And it can be built with bentonite. It can be built with uh, the site soils, but not going right from horizontal to vertical, like no 90 degree bend in the liner. Bring it up, and I don't, drawings don't do a really good job of ever conveying that, but uh, think about putting that in a little, a little fillet um, so that you transition gently from horizontal to vertical. Okay, demo anything about welding penetrations? Yeah, that, that is kind of an important one. When you're talking about a boot, where you're welding from the skirt to the, the collar of the boot, there's a 90 degree fillet weld that goes around the pipe. And if there's if there, the subgrade at that location is not good, if you have voids or impressions, then when you try to do your extrusion weld there, you have no backing. The, the, the Teflon shoe that creates the pressure and makes the seam on an extrusion welder needs something solid to push against. You have to provide pressure. And if there's voids on, in the subgrade at that location, then you're pushing through, you're melting through, you can have burnouts and, and uh, actually melt holes while you're trying to weld. But also if there's, if there's uh, voids there in service, that boot can, can move. The geomembrane can, can start to develop pressure in that area it can actually destroy the boot or damage the boot. And then later uh, a leak location survey comes by and finds that, that that's where the leak is. And I'm sure you've seen that a lot, Matt, where boots have, boots have actually come apart, broken apart because of the pressure. Um, and uh, a lot of times you'll see that too on, on a capping system on a landfill where the, the waste mass is biodegrading and, and shrinking and sinking. So it puts a lot of pressure. Those boots are clamped to the pipe that's penetrating it. So just start stretching the boot to a failure point. So all that has to be, and, and that is subject related, definitely. Yep. Brian, any comments about geotextiles around penetrations or using them? No, I've, I've, I've seen it before, but I think John, John hit the nail on the head, just creating that transition, creating a smoother transition for the, for the yeah. penetration. I want to add in my comment too, to reinforce what Dave was saying is that when when soils encounter a rigid structure, um, whether it's a uh, inlet or an outlet spillway or or a uh, aerator or a pipe or a pipe, the the soils compacted around those structures or adjacent to those structures, there's there's some extra effort required there to ensure that you've compacted that material properly so that you don't have a a differential settlement issue between the, the big soil mass and then the soil right next to the, the, the structure you're working with. Um, and, and that will contribute to that uh, damage to the boot and the membrane with time. Uh, and, and it's a really com common phenomena that we see as geotechs in, in like dam, dam construction. So it's, it's pretty well known. All right. All right, Matt, you see a lot of defects around pipe penetrations? <laughs> <laughs> we, we do, um, and but in specific to subgrade, if we've tested a site and, and found the leaks and been repaired and everything's great, and some time goes by and they say, hey, we've got some leakage, I'm going to go to where there were could have been voids, the toe slope, and the pipe boots first, and that's that's where you're typically going to find it. Over time, it, it could happen. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have for uh, attendees. I appreciate all the great questions. I didn't get to most of the questions. We will address them in our follow-up podcast. Thanks so much for sending them in. They were coming in frantically, and we will address them in our podcast. Okay, uh, let's see. So I want to thank our five distinguished panelists for fielding some questions and letting me hit you cold with some touchy topics. For the attendees, our next webinar will be in 2021. If it's on the Jaeger Airport reinforced soil slope failure. And this webinar is a follow-up to our first one and we'll discuss the details of the forensic limit equilibrium and flak analyses 
stress deformation analyses used in, to understand the causation of this significant failure. That's on January 14th. I hope you'll attend. And finally, I want to close today with thanking our webinar sponsors, E Squared in Hillside, New Jersey, and Leak Location Services, Inc. in San Antonio, Texas. So thank you everybody for attending and panelists, thanks so much for participating.